pray with me, Father, now we come in obedience and reverence. And I pray too in humility. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To open up the Scripture, Father, I pray through it that you would test our thoughts, our attitudes towards you, towards one another, towards the life that you have given to us. That you would cause our faith to strengthen as we're enabled to see that which is true concerning you. So, Father, please now work, I pray. Overcome any resistance we may have to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to John in chapter 17. John chapter 17, please. I want to, be, I want to read verses 6 through 9. Uh, John chapter 17, please. Actually, let me begin in verse 1 and read through verse 9. That might be better. Hear the Word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You since You've given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them, and come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, we know that this is this prayer of Jesus. It's this prayer at this moment of of deep passion for him, because he's about to go to the cross to endure what no man could ever really endure other than him. That is, uh, the forsakenness, the wrath of his Father in such a way that he will experience this eternal death, eternal hell, really eternal punishment. Uh, For all those, as he says here, the Father uh, has given him. So he's facing that and he uh, he comes to pray. Now his mission, that about which he's praying, his mission is to give eternal life to all those whom the Father had given him. He wants to give eternal life. That's why he's come, to be the giver of life, the giver of eternal life, because eternal life had been lost. It had been lost all the way back in the Garden of Eden uh, through the sin of Adam and Eve. We, we know that situation. We know that circumstance there in the Garden. And eternal life was therein lost because we know that eternal life is living as those created in the image of God are to live. That is, eternal life is living to honor God. It's living in relationship and from relationship with Him. To live in this eternal life, this life that comes from God, means that we are those who love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors as well, to love others as well. It's in the midst of that, you see, that eternal 
life is lived. Eternal life is lived in peace. It's lived in harmony. Uh, it's lived uh, with a sense of security, uh, personally. That is, it's lived with this sense of, of, of security, physically, emotionally, uh, psychologically. It's lived with that kind of security, that, 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 that you know that all is well. Uh, you're living in a life of wholeness, a life of peace, peace with God, peace with each other. That's this sense of eternal life. We, we know that there are times when people who are existing say, this isn't life. Uh, there are times in a marriage relationship when a husband or wife or both might say, this isn't living, really, because there's no harmony, there's no peace. There's no love from one to another. There's strife and enmity and anxiety and all of that created in the midst of this relationship. So this isn't really life. There's something we know. This isn't what it's supposed to be. When disease ravages a body, people look and say, this isn't really living. When poverty and injustice marginalize people in such a way that their lives are miserable, we say, this really isn't living. Uh, Jesus has come to give eternal life. And yes, it is everlasting. It does go on forever. But there's a sense in which for those to whom Jesus gives eternal life, it begins then. It begins upon His giving of it so that they can be in right relationship with God and have peace with Him and even live that out amongst others, peace with each other. And to that extent, we live out this life that He gives to us. So Jesus prays. He prays uh, very intently about this mission, that he can be one who gives eternal life to those the Father uh, has given him. As we read through this prayer, and we'll be doing it for some time, and we have been doing it for a few weeks already, as we read through this prayer, we learn a great deal, not only about praying, we learn a great deal about God. We learn a great deal about the Father, we learn a great deal about the Son, as the Son pours his heart out to the Father. We learn a great deal about even ourselves and our relationship with God. This morning, I simply want to ask two questions, focusing on two questions. Uh, the first is this. For whom does Jesus pray? And the second, which is a, a question that we'll only begin to answer today, we'll continue to, answer, to ask it throughout the next probably couple of months. But um, the second question is, uh, what is true about the people for whom Jesus prays? Right? Those two questions today, uh, the first we'll answer, I think, as completely as we need to. The second we'll continue to answer it. Um, there'll be other answers to this question as we read ourselves through this prayer. For whom does Jesus pray? Secondly, what is true about those for whom Jesus prays? Now, when we think about uh, Jesus praying, notice verse 9. He says, I'm praying for them. So we have to figure out who the them is. I'm praying for them. He tells us who the them isn't. He says, I'm not praying for the world. Now, you notice that this prayer of Jesus is a very, very specific thing. Um, he's, verse 2, he says, uh, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And so we see this, the, how, how specific Jesus is. Is a particular group of people in mind, even as he comes to give them eternal life. Now, this is... This is mysterious to us. You see, we think about our salvation almost always from our perspective. Whereas here, 
we're getting a sense of our salvation through God's perspective. Now, both perspectives, in some sense, are fine, and we'll develop this later, but, but in some sense, really fine. When people come and they ask you, how is it that you came to faith? When is it that you came to faith? How is it that you came to faith? You think it through the process. You think it through, perhaps, the person who shared with you. You think it through, perhaps, the family in which you were raised and how you came to understand this. You may think it through a particular crisis in your life that brought you, in some sense, to your knees, brought you, in some sense, to an understanding that you needed God that brought you to your an understanding that Jesus was the very Son of God, the very Savior, the one you needed, brought you to a crisis of understanding your own sin, your own need, understanding the sin of humanity. You know, as Roger was praying this morning, he opened up with Isaiah 6, where Isaiah not only identifies himself as a sinner, but everybody else too. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And he was an Israelite. He was, he was a person who was in this very covenant with God, but he understood the sinfulness of humanity and the alienation from God. He was a man of unclean lips, meaning everything that came out of him, which was representative of what was true of him, was unclean. And he lived among a people for whom that was true as well. And so when we think about our own salvation, we think about it, in, in some sense as well we should, from our perspective. How did this all come about? It's important for us to have that kind of a touchstone, that's, that sort of uh, personal interaction, if you will, with God. Some sort of way of, of saying, yes, I know that I believe it. And let me tell you the process through which it has come in my life. For some, it's very dramatic. For others, it isn't. But each who really believes, who is really one who belongs to God, who really has been saved from sin and has eternal life, that person can walk that through in some way, shape, or form and say, yes, I know that I believe. And that's very good. But, but what we're seeing here, and this is what startles us and is mysterious to us, is we're seeing how God the Son and God the Father understand our salvation. And that is a helpful perspective as well. So this is very particular, this prayer of Jesus that he comes. So he's saying, in this moment, he's not praying for everybody in the world. But notice how he puts it. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So you get the subset of the world for whom Jesus is praying. It's the same group of people that he mentions in verse 2. Since you've given him authority, that is the Son, over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. That's the, the, that, that's the group of people for whom Jesus is praying. Now, that's comprised, very practically, of two groups. Uh, one is his immediate disciples, those who are around him at the moment, who are listening to him pray this prayer. Much of what Jesus says is, is sort of in the present and even in the past tense. For instance, notice verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And so that's something that Jesus, by this moment in time, it appears, has done. And so it had to be those people who were around him at the time. So he's certainly praying for them. Uh, verse 7, at the end of verse 6, he says, And they have kept your word or obeyed your word. Verse 7, Now they know everything that you've given me is from you. They know this already, this group of people. 
Uh, for I've given them the words that you gave me. They've received them, come to know in truth that I came from you. They've believed that you sent me. So, so we get the sense that Jesus is praying for his immediate disciples, his immediate followers, those who have, have, uh, are, are hearing him pray this prayer as he makes his way to be betrayed. But then notice in verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as uh, you, Father, in me and I in you, and blah, blah, blah. So the, the, the notion is he's not only praying for those who are with him at the moment, but he's praying also, and so you get the sense that he would be praying all of these kinds of petitions. He's praying for also for all those who will believe through their testimony. Now, who is that? That's everybody who believes. We believe through their witness. We believe through their testimony. Because the part of each of us coming to faith is trusting in something that is written in this Bible about Jesus and about us. And so, so all those the Father had given to Jesus, rather with him in the moment, had believed in that day because they had seen and heard Jesus, or would come to believe. So, this sense, the, the, the sense of this prayer is, it's for all people who will come to faith in Jesus. All those the Father had given to Jesus, all those to whom he had given, he, he would give or had given eternal life. Do you see that? That's, that's the to whom. Uh, those are the people Jesus is praying for at this moment in time. Now, the question then is, what is true about those people for whom Jesus prays. I just want to highlight something today. Notice verse 6. Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. So one of the things that's true about the people to whom Jesus, for whom Jesus prays is that he reveals himself. He manifests himself in some way to them. Now, 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 there's this general revelation of, even of Jesus. There's this, this, this common revelation of Jesus uh, to, to anybody who will listen, anybody who will pick up the Bible. In the days of Jesus, lots of people saw him. Lots of people heard him. Many people even witnessed the resurrection. Some who believed and some who even didn't believe, even though they had seen the resurrected Jesus. Because Jesus is the manifestation, the revelation of God. I read this morning for our call to worship from John chapter 14. I'm sorry, John chapter 1. Uh, verse 14 puts it like this. And the word that is Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So he's the very manifestation of the glory of God, whether people can see it or not. That's who he is and who Jesus is. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God, that's a reference to Jesus, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And so Jesus has come to make Him known. You remember the interchange, perhaps, that Jesus had with the Apostle Philip. And, and Philip says, you know, how do we know where you're going? And, 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 and how, we've never seen you, seen God. And Jesus said, well, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. He's the very revelation of God. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians in chapter 1, he, he puts it like this beginning in verse, 
in verse 15 uh, of, of Colossians 1. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. He's the invisible, uh, he's he's the image of the invisible God. In him the fullness of God dwelt. The author of Hebrews uh, puts it like this in Hebrews in chapter 1 of Jesus. Long ago in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. Through Him also He created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprints of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Uh, So we see that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the splendor of God's glory. To see him is to see God. He's the imprint of God's nature. Um, That's who he is. To see him uh, is is to see God. So Jesus comes to reveal, but, but again, you get this sense that even as, as he reveals, uh, not everyone uh, really sees. Um, as we read through the book, the Gospel of John, it's all about the manifestation of Jesus' glory. You might remember from John in chapter 2, Jesus is at a wedding. Uh, and it's an interesting situation because it's early on, obviously, in this public life of Jesus. And the, and the couple, the wedding couple, runs out of wine. Um, May or may not be a huge deal, but it's a huge deal there. Jesus' mom, Mary, comes to him and, 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 and sort of prods him along to help. And you might remember the story that Jesus asked them to gather water, to draw water, to fill up these big basins or, of, of water of, uh, that would hold the water. And uh, these water containers were to hold water that would contain water that would be for ceremonial cleansing, purifying, to say that that even though I'm a sinner, I live in the presence of God, and this water symbolizes cleansing. And so Jesus then, as you know, turns that water into wine, not even average wine, but great wine, the best that there could be. And everyone is amazed. And at that moment, the Apostle John says, Ah, we saw His glory and believed. Not everybody saw it. Not everybody believed. And it's even difficult as we look back on that particular incident to, 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 to know exactly what they saw. Was it just a, simply the miracle itself? I mean, it, it's cool. I mean, water to wine. I mean, who can do that? Uh, that says something about the guy uh, right there. But, 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 but perhaps more, he was the bridegroom at a wedding. The bridegroom in the context of, 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 of God's people. Was that what they saw? Did they, did they see the fact that, that this water that was used for purification now was, was wine that would symbolize the very blood of Jesus that showed real cleansing that was to come? Is, is this a, a movement from the old to the new? Who, who knows what they saw at that moment? We can sort of look back into it and see even more the glory of Christ at that point. But, but even then they saw it. 
And throughout the, the, the Gospel of John, he, he points to his very, various signs, various other miracles that Jesus had done. There was a man who was, who was, who, who was an invalid, and he was by this pool, and, and the, the, the thought was that once, if the waters of the pool would, would sort of begin to stir, that if you could get into the pool, then you would be healed. And Jesus came upon this man and said, you want to be healed? And the man said, well, what do you think, uh, essentially? Uh, uh, and, and Jesus said, pick up your bed and walk. And he did. But not everybody believed in Jesus. Now, the disciples saw something, but, but not everybody believed. Some were upset with Jesus because he actually had the audacity to heal on the Sabbath. <laughs> what a tragedy. And then you know the time that Jesus was with a group of people, thousands of people, and there wasn't anything to eat. He took some pieces of bread and a couple of pieces of fish out of a boy's lunch, and he fed 5,000. But rather than seeing the glory of God in the midst of that, uh, many wanted to make him king because what they really wanted was a chicken in every pot. What they really wanted was to be fed their stomach full. And, and, and they missed the very point of all of that. And so Jesus used that moment to tell them that he was the bread of life. If they really would see him, they would know that. If they would really see him, they would come to him so that they might, that they might live. And to, to live meant to, to follow after him, to be nurtured and nourished and sustained by him alone. And many who heard that left him. Even some who had formerly been called his disciples left him. But Jesus looked at his own and said, well, what about you? And Peter said, where can we go? There was a difference between those ones that Jesus had called. There was a difference between those ones that Jesus had said, come and follow me. They were getting it. They seemed to get it in the midst of all of that. There was a man who had been born blind. Jesus gave him sight. Again, the, the controversy. How could he do this on the Sabbath? And who is this, this one? And then Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Amazingly, a man who had been dead for four days, Jesus raised him from the dead. And rather than seeing the glory of God in that, ironically, the religious leaders plotted to kill Jesus. I don't know what they were thinking. He just raised somebody from the dead. How did they think they could kill him and keep him dead? I just, that's just a funny thing to me. It's just one of those odd things uh, that human beings think about. But there he was, you see. And all of this to manifest his glory. But you get the sense that, that though his disciples didn't get it to the degree that they would get it, they were, they were still tracking along with Jesus. And that because he was revealing himself uh, to them in a very real way. For instance, after having told a parable, Jesus took his disciples aside and said this, this to them. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 11. He says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. How do we make sense of that? Other than Jesus had come to give eternal life to those the Father had given him, and these were among those the Father had given him, and so he came to reveal himself to them, to manifest himself to them. A uh, page back in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 25, we read this from the lips of Jesus. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Again, 
this particular aspect of Jesus and his prayer and his manifestation to them. If you're a Bible reader, you know this particular instance that happened in the life of Peter in Matthew in chapter 16. Jesus comes to his disciples and he says to them, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they give him a variety of responses based on what people had been saying about Jesus. And then Jesus uh, asked them, he says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, meaning son of Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Again, this sense of of special getting it by by Peter. Uh, Luke, in chapter 10, in verse 21, we read this. In the same hour, he, that is Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them uh, to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Again, as he said before in a different context, we read out of Matthew, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So we see one thing that is true of those for whom Jesus prays is that he manifests himself to them. He reveals himself uh, to them. Second thing we notice about those for whom Jesus prays is that they respond. They respond to his revelation. Notice verse 6. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Notice, he manifested and they've obeyed. They've kept his word. Uh, It isn't that he manifested himself to them and it fell on deaf ears. He manifested himself to them and they kept his word. They got it. Verse 7. Now they know. So they know something. They know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me and they have received them. And have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. And so these ones for whom Jesus prays He reveals himself to them in such a way that they uh, keep his word, that they receive this truth about him, and that they believe that he really is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's true of them. In response to the work of Jesus, in response to his prayer, that's true of them. They receive it. Now, when we receive something, it means we, we come to take it. It's as if we own it. When the UPS person comes, and uh, or whoever the competitor, this isn't an advertisement for UPS. I'm just old, and uh, I don't. I know there are other people that do that other than UPS now. But when I was a kid, I don't even think they wore brown. But um, I don't know what they wore. Uh, but uh, when the UPS person brings uh, a package to you, sign for it, you receive it. It's all right. This is this is now mine. I'm I'm taking possession of this. This is really true. And when we receive Jesus, when we receive these words concerning Him, we say, yes, I own these. These are true. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of sinners of whom I am one, perhaps competing with the Apostle as the chief of all sinners, as he described himself. I receive them. I believe. I place my trust in them. This is my life. That's true of those for whom Jesus prays. They respond.
to Him. They must respond because He has manifested Himself to Him in a way to evoke that response because He has prayed for Him, because He has come with a mission to give eternal life to these particular ones whom the Father had given Him. And thus, as we read through the Scripture, for instance, we find the response being the very response that's, that's commanded. For instance, in Mark in chapter 1 and verse 14, in the beginning part of Jesus' ministry, uh, Mark writes this, This is now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, that's the response. Repentance and faith. Repentance and belief. Repentance meaning a change of mind. So it means to repent. In the Hebrew concept of repentance, in the Old Testament, it means that that you're on one road going in one direction and you realize you're going in the wrong direction. So you turn around. Truth is that we were not only going in the wrong direction on the wrong road, we were on the wrong road. And so we had to change roads and go in the right direction. And it's a turning. It's a, it's a turning. It's an about face. And it's a moving in the right direction as opposed to the wrong direction. In the New Testament, the, the Greek nuance of repentance is a changing of one's mind to, to think entirely different, have a, a reorientation to everything about life. And to realize it isn't about me. It isn't about what I uh, desire and all of that. It's about the will of God. It's, a, it's about Him. And it's about following Him. That's this sense of repentance. And we come to that sense of repentance. It, it means that, oh no, I've been wrong. Not just mistakenly wrong, but rebelliously wrong, sinfully wrong. I've been offending the true and living God. And thus there is a sense of acknowledging that. And, and there's a sense, sense of acknowledging Jesus is the very one who has done it right and for us. And has taken what I deserve upon the cross. And thus I trust in Him. I turn and believe. Turn and believe. Um, we see this in Luke and chapter 3, perhaps even more clearly. Verse 7. It's about Jesus. He's, I'm sorry, about, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, John the Baptist speaking to crowds. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to free from the wrath to come? Verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Verse 10, and the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations or be content with your wages. In other words, he says, There's a life that's consistent with your repentance. Live it. That's your response. So those for whom Jesus prays, He comes and He reveals Himself to them, and they respond. They respond by receiving this as true. They respond by believing. And they respond in these ways of repentance, turning away and walking with Him. And amazingly, we see throughout the Scripture that this response is even a gift of God. As we were reading through the book of Acts, we ran upon this time after time after time. For instance, 
in Acts, in chapter 11, in verse 18, we read this. And when they heard these things, that is, these things about Jesus, they fell silent. That, by the way, is why we generally have a time of silence in our worship service. Uh, we probably should move it around from just being in the front or the beginning of the service. But, but there is this, there's this great old southern expression. I think it is this, I've heard it first in the south. When you're astounded and startled by something and a person says, well, shut my mouth. Well, that's really a, a good expression. Because what it means is, that is so amazing, I have no words to describe it. I, I can't say anything about it at all. And there is a sense in which, you see, when they hear these truths about Jesus, that, that they just have to say, well, shut my mouth. I just don't have anything to say. I'm just astounded by the truth of that. That's why the prophet Habakkuk, who I quote, quoted this morning, who said, the Lord is in his holy temple that all the world keeps silence before him. In other words, what can we say when we have a glimpse of God? So when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles, Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Granted repentance that leads to life. The little word granted is the word that we often translate in a different way, grace. He's graced them to repentance. He's given them repentance. He's given them the ability, the grace, that they may repent. In chapter 13 and verse 48, uh, we read this. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many who were appointed to eternal life believed. This was a gift. This was something that they were the ones... that. The Father had given to the Son, and now they believed. In, in chapter 18 of the book of Acts, in verse 27, there are more. I'll just read a few. And when he wished uh, to cross the Caia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When they arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. Now notice, Luke doesn't say, who believed and therefore received grace. He says, who through grace believed and over something was given to them and it enabled them, therefore, to believe. Paul writes in Philippians in chapter 1 and verse 29. He says, for it has been granted to you or graced to you for the sake of Christ, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him but also suffer for him, His sake. In other words, the grace of God comes that you may believe but also that you may suffer for him. And then finally, in 2 Timothy in chapter 2, in verse 25, we read this. Let me begin with verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may escape from the snare of the devil. In other words, that he may... Give them grace. All right, let me sum up and let me tell you why this is important to us. Or at least important to me. Jesus has come to grant eternal life. He's come to grant eternal life to a particular group of people, those the Father had given to him, those who belong to his Father. Jesus said, I have authority over all flesh. Everybody could belong to me. 
have authority over every single one, but I've come with a particular mission so that I can give eternal life to these particular ones that the Father had given to me. Therefore, he manifests himself to those people for certain in such a way that they receive this truth, in such a way that they believe, in such a way that they repent, in such a way that they walk with him, because he's given them that grace, that gift. Now, why is this important? A few minutes ago, well, okay, 25 minutes ago now, I said that we have a tendency, and not a bad tendency, to think about our salvation uh, as from our perspective. And that's helpful. We need to grab a hold of that. Everybody should be able to say, yes, I'm a believer in Christ. And I can recount when I came first to know that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. Now, for me, I can't remember because of the family in which I grew up and God's kindness to me, because he knew that if he gave me an inch, I would, might be gone forever. But uh, I can't remember not believing in Jesus. But, but still, for me, I can go through, I can rehearse this, this, this truth. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need a Savior. And I know that Christ is He. So we all have that. We can all look at it from our own perspective. And that's important. And that leads me to worship. As I think about my salvation, I am so incredibly grateful for my family. I'm so incredibly grateful for the church in which I grew up. I'm so incredibly grateful for God for offering a way of salvation through Christ because without it I would be utterly and completely lost. And I know all of that. And I'm grateful for Him because as I look to the world in which we live and I realize the misery and the suffering and all of that, it brings me joy to think that He's made a way so that a day will come, in fact, when there will be no tears and no injustice and no disease and all of that will be done away with. And that's a great blessing. And for that I worship And I have a certain sense of security realizing that since Jesus made this way and since I've believed that I'll stay in this way and and all of that is good as well. And and, and there's an impetus for me to be obedient in the midst of that as well, to follow after him because I know that this is the truth. And and that's great. But, But now you see, as I read it from God's perspective, it even bumps up all of that by way of degree. Because I realize that from my perspective, how I understand this, I realize that something happened way before my perspective. In the mystery of God, in the unfathomable riches of His grace, for reasons unknown to me, I realize that before the foundation of the world, that God had in view a people whom He was going to save. And I am among them. And that you as a believer, you're among them. And to think that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed as he began to pray, and he recognized the authority that he had as the very Son of God, and he recognized the mission that he was on, he realized that he had come to give eternal life to these the Father had given him. And he did that. And to think of being numbered with that then causes me to realize that God in His grace not only made the opportunity, but fulfilled it. Not only made the opportunity, but brought it to fruition. Did everything that was necessary to bring these for whom Jesus prays, these whom the Father had given Him, to do everything by grace to bring them eternal life. And that's really when we say, well, shut my mouth. That's really when we say, I must be secure. That's really when we say, I must follow Him.
Pray with me. Father, pray for me and for us that you would continue to work in us. That our salvation is from you and you alone. And that we give you praise for every step and the whole process. Knowing that it is from you. So, Father, I pray that you would cause us to worship, really worship, because we know what you've done for us, and to walk in the truth that we know is truth, and to do that in all humility. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. The response to the benediction is, it should be, well, shut my mouth, but it's not. We can open our mouths, because this we can say. Praise be to God. And the word amen means yes, it means I receive it. That's what yes means. When Next time your UPS person comes and says, will you take this package, you say amen. Uh, it just means yes, I will receive it. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him, who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, praise be to God. Amen.